Welcome to the Friday subscribers only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor at large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor in chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Hi, Stuart. Sean, great to be in conversation with you guys today. Yeah, great to be here. Hey, same. Let's do what we always do on this uh, Friday pod by the Hub, our roundtable, looking at the week that was. And Sean, Stuart, the week of conservative politics continues to delight. Uh, We've been digging into it each Friday because it's just such a juicy buffet. It reminds me of, you know, my childhood and walking into those restaurants with all these different dishes under the plexiglass, picking up the spoon, eating till your heart's content. Stuart, what dish kind of captivated you in terms of uh, the discussion, but also the policy um, that we've seen knocked around in the leadership campaign the past seven days? Yeah, and just to kick off, we are entering a new phase here. Um, we're recording on Friday, which is the deadline for the final ballot. Um, anyone left in this race is now a verified candidate. You Maybe more people will filter through, but I think we're probably pretty set with the six people that we have, which is Leslie Lewis, Sean Charest, Pierre Polyev, Roman Baber, Patrick Brown, and Scott Aitchison. So that's our slate. Um, now we they'll be trying to get memberships, trying to sign people up, and then in June, We'll stop that. The deadline for memberships will uh, happen then. And then we'll switch into sort of a straight policy debate. Um, this was a good policy week, though, because we s- sort of found out that we have a consensus on uh, the carbon tax. Jean Charest finally said, I'm against it. I'm going to scrap the carbon tax. And um, we were kind of waiting for that to happen. I think maybe there were some people who thought maybe he would equivocate on that. Um, but no, that's it. His, his environment plan is very high level doesn't have a lot of details, but he did say he's going to revert to the 2015 Stephen Harper um, goals on emissions, and he's not going to have a carbon tax. So we kind of have something to go on from there. Let's talk about that with you, Sean, because I know uh, you're someone who's kind of slogged away in the trenches these last couple of years, really trying to get the conservative movement to think through what is an environmental policy? What does that look like? And in your view, Sean, you know, market mechanisms matter. There's a lot maybe conservatives could and should have liked about carbon pricing, but boy, Sean, here we are. It sounds like um, that whole model, that entire approach with Jean Charest, you know, one of the self-avowed architects of the Kyoto Protocols, um, it seems like uh, it's over for the party. It, we have moved on. Um, pricing carbon is out. Yeah, that, that's right, uh, Rudyard. The, the 
different campaigns, not just in this leadership, but if you go back and think of the Ontario PC leadership a few years ago, have all reached the seemingly the same conclusion, which is um, running on a carbon tax within the, the, the party is the equivalent of political kryptonite. Um, let me just go high level for a second on, on this point, Rudyard. You know, one thing that bugs me about Canadian politics these days are these, there, there are these shibboleths, these conventional wisdoms about um, what the Canadian public will support or not support that kind of govern the way in which we do politics in Canada. And a lot of them are actually these kind of empty hypotheses that have never really been tested. Um, so there's this presumption that a conservative can't win on a carbon tax. There's a presumption that the Canadian public isn't ready for a conversation about uh, private health care. There's an assumption that anything but supporting higher and higher levels of immigration is um, politically toxic. There's a presumption that even introducing the idea that we ought to have some form of restrictions on access to abortion is a political non-starter. These are all these hypotheses that sort of shape and influence our politics, and, and, and yet no one has ever tested them. Uh, we just sort of accept them as conventional wisdoms. And I think that reflects two things. One, the group of people who do politics in Canada is quite small. You have these strategists who move from one campaign to another, bringing with them their prevailing assumptions. And then you have a media class that in effect kind of reinforces these conventional wisdoms about Canadian politics. So, you know, I don't know if Jean Charest should have come out in favor of the carbon tax or not a carbon tax, but I, I sure wish we'd had some politicians that would be prepared to kind of puncture some and test some of these assumptions that just completely set these parameters around what's in and out when it comes to Canadian politics. Great point, Sean. And, you know, it's also you know, like, what's your next best alternative in any negotiation or conversation with a voter? And, you know, I get the excitement around something like carbon capture. Uh, it sounds great. You know, let's just bury it all, um, pump it underground, um, treat it in some way, fix the carbon and get rid of it. But, you know, we've got to be honest with ourselves. This is incredibly experimental uh, science and technology. None of it is proven at scale. And uh, I guess, you know, Stuart, I lament a little bit here. It just seems like uh, once again, the conservative movement is proverbially throwing, you know, a real environmental policy, something that clearly you're going to need to put in the shop window somewhere to win a national election. Forget, you know, this this leadership race, but you're going to have to have a credible national environmental policy. And I, you know, carbon capture on its own, unless we have some significant game changing breakthrough, it's it's not going to do it. Yeah. And the same argument can be made about renewables, right? Like they are fine. They work pretty well, but the scaling is really the problem. And I will, if you start to read the tea leaves on how this will go, I think Sean made a great point one or two podcasts ago about how, you know, politicians, our leaders, they can barely deal with some, you know, significant, but not insane inflation that's raising prices for us. Um, you know, they're cutting us checks because groceries are going up. Um, so there's very little um, sense that they're actually going to be able to handle 170 grams or $170 per ton uh, carbon tax. So uh, then you start to figure out well, what, what probably will happen down the road if we actually plan on meeting these targets. And you can look at Alberta and Ontario 
the political um, deal that these provinces have made while they fought the consumer carbon tax was to put a tax on industrial emitters. Um, I think that's probably the backdoor we'll be using for this, along with a lot of regulations. And, you know, it's it's less efficient, but also I would just say the industrial emitters tax, it will eventually be paid for by us. So it's going to do the same thing in a slightly less efficient way. Um, I think probably I, I buy the argument that the political upheaval and the political strife caused by the carbon tax, the perceived unfairness of how it's levied, um, maybe that's not worth it. Maybe a little bit of inefficiency is worth it compared to that happening in our political system. Sean, what's your, your take here just about, you know, I don't know the necessity of having a credible policy for reductions. Because I mean, you can absolutely engage with all the arguments that, you know, Canada globally is a small, you know, emitter based on our small population in proportion to what China and India and these other countries are doing. But, you know, so, someone was telling me, I didn't realize this in the last six months, the government of, uh, in the Netherlands has reduced highway speeds uh, to guess what? Uh, reduce emissions. It's a very effective strategy. If you drop your your highway commuting speeds by twenty to thirty kilometers, um, your portion of emissions from transportation declines significantly. You know, I just think we're naive if we don't think that other jurisdictions that we trade with, um, like the Netherlands and all of Europe, uh, basically are just going to continue to undertake what are for their on their part real demonstrable public actions to reduce emissions and then allow us canada to be some kind of climate laggard uh you know on the other end of the spectrum in terms of having a, a series of policies that are either ineffective unproven uh or simply unable to lower Canadian emissions, which have been rising consistently uh, year after year. You know, I worry about carbon tariffs. I worry about the extent as a country that is highly dependent on exports as, uh, you know, a portion of our GDP, that we don't have this luxury. And I feel there's a kind of insularity to this debate. Again, a Canadian proclivity to like, let's have our cake and eat it too, people. We can do whatever we want. Throw away a carbon tax, make a long bet on on uh, carbon sequestration. I don't know, am I being too negative here, Sean? No, I think there's something to that. You, you started your observations um, by referring to um, the kind of question of electoral politics. And I think your instinct is right, that there does seem to be evidence that for swing voters in parts of the country, the environment is seen as a kind of threshold issue. It's not necessarily what they're voting on, um, but they before they'll hear from the different parties on their broader programs, they wanna be, confident and satisfied that the parties are at least uh, nodding to these issues of climate change and, and the environment. And so I think the question before the party on a kind of just a matter of raw politics is, are they meeting that threshold? And then the bigger picture point that you raised, Rudyard, you know, I would just say all of the candidates running for the leadership um, that are sitting in parliament at present have voted in favor of Canada's emission targets. They've actually voted in favor of legislation setting the goal of net zero emissions by 2050. And so at like some level of, of integrity, you know, it seems to me if you're going to vote for these things on one hand, on the other hand, you need to put forward a, a good faith effort to, you know, in effect, bring expression to those votes. Otherwise, you're, you're, implicitly, you're implicitly recognizing or accepting that you don't really believe 
in, in what you're doing in Parliament. So I guess that's a long way of saying, uh, you know, I guess we'll see how this issue plays out. Um, but, you know, it seems to me it is a subject where conservatives broadly, not just the political party, but now the, the movement in, in broader terms uh, needs to get serious and, and innovative when it comes to public policy or it's going to continue to be uh, a, a defensive issue uh, for conservative politicians. Stuart, let's just talk uh, finally in this roundup about, um, as you say, uh, an important week this week because we we basically have the list of candidates who've been able to reach a fairly high bar in terms of funds raised to kind of officially make it into the race. So maybe just review that list for us and remind us what were the qualifications that uh, people had to achieve or evidence to um, to now officially have their kind of name on the ballot and to be part of this race through to the end. Yeah, it, it is a high bar. And if you are someone like Scott Aitchison, who is an Ontario MP that probably nobody really knew um, coming into this, the fact that he was able to prove that he can get $300,000, that's the total amount of deposits and fees and whatever that they would have paid by now. And then 500 signatures, which it actually, you know, 500 doesn't sound like a lot, but there are rules on the signatures, which means it has to be 30 different electoral districts in seven different provinces. So that means you have to have some kind of organizational prowess. You need to be a credible candidate. And, you know, that's interesting for a couple of these people who maybe didn't expect to win, but wanted to sort of exert some influence on the party or show that they will be an influential person in the party going forward. So I think anyone who's made this deadline can at least, you know, give themselves a pat on the back for that. Um, right now, I think we're looking at front runners and the others. Uh, we now have a list of six people. We'll finalize that over the weekend and make sure that's right. But I would suggest we probably have Polyev and Sheree and, you know, Patrick Brown is kind of a mystery to us, but I would suggest that he's probably in the conversation um, on the final ballot. Uh, Leslie Lewis will also be a really interesting candidate who I think probably has a ceiling that precludes that, but, you know, str stranger things have happened. Um, Roman Baber also is one of those people who probably will be using this to increase his uh, platform in the party. Um, so that it, it is quite a milestone. So anyone who's left here, I think we can look to as somewhat credible. And as much as this is a mystery to a lot of us, because a lot of this happens below the surface, um, we can see now who's credible. And also, you know, next week, we have our first debate. So how they handle that debate, how the back and forth goes, I think will tell us a lot about where the candidates perceive themselves in the race. So Sean, what's your th thinking around this, this list? Um, you know, Stuart also in his helpful Friday roundup of the conservative leadership race, which you can get right now on the hub. It's on our homepage at www.thehub.ca. You know, had some polling, um, some polling data um, just, you know, picked from uh, the news of the last few days. And interesting to see that, you know, other than Jean Charest and Pierre Polyev, there is really, I would say, just I'm not <laughs> stating anything other than the obvious. There's like zero name recognition for any of these other candidates. This is really a, a two-man race. Uh, Sean in that poll suggested, again, a significant advantage for Polyev at this point in terms of uh, name recognition with the Canadian public. Yeah, I think that reflects a couple of things. His social media prowess, which we've talked a bit about in previous episodes. Also, um, probably his polarizing nature. People either love him or hate him. Um, and you know that's bound to boost name recognition for better or for worse. Can I just pick up on Leslie Lewis for a minute, though, I've, 
you know, I've been yeah. making the case on previous episodes that I thought she would be a, a player in this race, if for no other reason that she has a unique and separate constituency than the other candidates in the form of the party's, you know, meaningful cohort of social conservative voters. You know, one thing, though, that I think holding back her candidacy is as we get to know more about her, um, I think I think the evidence is increasingly clear that she's not up to the job to be prime minister. She did an interview this week um, on CBC where she talked about her economic and fiscal plan. And guys, it was, um, you know, something resembling a graduate class seminar discussion, um, pretty low quality not well-informed. Um, and so, you know, Leslie and Lewis in theory seems to be a better candidate than Leslie and Lewis in reality. And, um, you know, I think that's probably good for uh, some of the other candidates because she will, um, she may not be as a big player in this race as some of us, including me, um, anticipated. Stuart, what's your sense? Any kind of sleepers here in the so-called you know, B list. Um, you know, just to be honest, I don't, I don't see any. Uh, I often think it's very curious as to why people go to this effort. In this case, I believe it was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars you have to had to raise to throw your hat in. I, I don't think it's all refundable either. Um, you know, what are these people doing, Stuart? I mean, <laughs> like, is this just? I know people in politics like to see their names on signs and audiences chanting their name. Uh, you know, chanting. Uh, I get that, but wow, uh, you have to wonder about this kind of tier two list. Yeah, I, I think that if you're Scott Aitchison and you just put yourself on the sort of national agenda, even with the low name recognition and those name recognition numbers you quoted earlier, that is among conservative voters. That's not even the general public. Um, okay. And some of these people are, you know, at 75% non-name recognition. And if you listen to Eric Grenier, the polling expert, who's got his own publication called The Writ, um, people tend to overstate their knowledge to pollsters. That right. usually means nobody knows you if you're at three quarters non-name recognition. So it is low. Um, but I do think that if you have made a name for yourself this way and shown you can organize and shown you have some ideas, there is a chance that, you know, if you're a white guy from Ontario who might not have been considered for a cabinet job, maybe you're, you know, 50% more likely to be considered now. Um, and you've just spent a few months of your life working really hard for that. Um, so that I think is probably the big play here. Um, if you are, you know, Les and Lewis is a very interesting one because if she hadn't run in this race, um, the social conservative vote, I think wouldn't have had anywhere to go. And I, you could have imagined a lot of those people staying home and just not voting. So if you're Pierre Polyev, and I think you can reasonably assume that you are the second choice of a lot of Leslie Lewis voters, her bringing those people out to the polls is an, an incredible service for you because you're adding voters to his tallies. So um, if you're Leslie Lewis, I would expect that if Pierre Polyev wins, you should expect at least a big thank you and maybe a little more from him uh, if he takes power. Sean, anything you want to add to that? Um, as always, you know, we're trying to kind of sift through the tea leaves. It's so early these days, um, but you do continue to have this sense again, whether it's real or not. And we've talked about how, you know, social media not only distorts our own perceptions of reality, it can seemingly distort, you know, the candidates' perceptions maybe of reality. And I think some people have 
begun to wonder a little bit about the increasingly at times, um, you know, strident rhetoric um, from the Polyev camp. I mean, the most recent, you know, salvo against the Bank of Canada calling, you know, senior officials of the Bank of Canada financially illiterate. I mean, that may be a, a great, you know, a great hot take, but come on, it's, it's, uh, well, it's both, I would say demeaning to him as a candidate in terms of potentially the sophistication he can bring to that discussion, which is, as you know, one that I think we should have about the Bank of Canada as a policymaking uh, entity in the country. But it it just leads you, Sean, to wonder about, you know, the forerunner in this campaign and his ability to remain to a certain extent, you know, disciplined and thinking beyond the leadership to a national race and to assuming the mantle of prime minister, uh, or at least getting people to the rest of the country to try to imagine him assuming that mantle. I, I think that's I think that's exactly right, Rudyard, um, that the real test for Polyev is the question of, of discipline. Um, you know, this is a candidate who, um, you know, flies pretty close to the sun and has been rewarded for flying close to the sun um, throughout this race. Um, but he has to be careful not to touch it. Um, and the uh, the temptation to touch it grows stronger every day as he, you know, gets these uh, uh, reactions on social media and in person to um, some of these strident claims about the Bank of Canada, about defunding the CBC, and so on. And so, I, you know, I think your instinct is exactly right, that come September 7th, if Pierre Polyev is the leader, um, it's because he's been able to strike this balance between um, you know, giving voters what they want uh, without crossing the kind of proverbial line. And uh, man, that's going to be tough to sustain over the next um, 90 days or so. Thanks. Uh, look, we're going to take a quick break. When we're back, we're going to go to Ron DeSantis's Republic in the Sun. There's some really interesting, uh, yeah, just confluence of issues around how business and politics is uh, merging. And uh, wow, you wouldn't want to be Disney right now. But we're going to bring that all home around in the context of a terrific uh, Huff dialogue that uh, Sean did this week, and that's a, a must read. So back right after this break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a Hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Okay, Hub listeners, welcome back to our weekly roundtable discussion with Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and me, Rudyard Griffiths. 
your erstwhile executive director at the hub. I love that title, guys. It just sounds just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? I think I, maybe I deserve something bigger, like Grand Poobah or <laughs> Supreme Leader. How about Supreme Leader? Um, as long as it's a non a, a non compensated title, that's just fine. Yeah. Whoa. Let's talk about that. Inflation <laughs> nipping away in my pocketbook here, guys. We're gonna have to. Save that for another day, though, because I want to, Sean, focus with you on a, a great interview that you did, kind of exploring with an author, exploring how, you know, business and politics, uh, you know, there's assumption that, you know, the two connect occasionally, but there's an argument here, a rationale, and we're seeing it playing out in Florida right now that, you know, it's no longer just an occasional connection, an issue with, you know, Nike and uh, Colin Kaepernick something bigger is potentially going on here where politics is metastasizing through all of our society with, with increasingly big, big consequences for business and for the economy. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the author and the interview, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. It's, it's two episodes of our regular hub dialogues podcast this week, um, broadly cover this question of the growing politicization of the private sector. As you mentioned on Tuesday, uh, we, we spoke uh, with an author about his book that he calls The New Political Capitalism. And uh, later today, today's Friday, uh, April 29th, we'll be releasing uh, our regular bi-weekly interview with David Frum, where we similarly um, touch on some of these issues, and, and in particular, what's going on in Florida, as you say. And, you know, it seems to me the big takeaway from those two conversations is, is as follows, guys that uh, increasingly companies are facing pressure from investors, consumers, but particularly employees um, to manifest their values um, in the adoption of political and policy positions in a way that we haven't seen in the past. In the past, the extent to which businesses were focused on issues of policy and politics, it tended to be about the narrow interests of the corporation, taxes, regulations, trade, labor relations and so on. Um, but increasingly, um, they're moving into these kind of difficult and thorny questions of culture and identity. And that is producing um, increasing pushback, particularly from conservative politicians like uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And so, you know, it seems to me, if we have business leaders or entrepreneurs uh, listening to the podcast today, thinking about how to navigate this, these questions of uh, politicization, you know, is going to increasingly be one of the biggest questions or issues um, on their desk, which is not something you would have said five, 10, 50, 15 years ago. Stuart, do you want to uh, give us, if you feel like it, a, just a quick encapsulation of what's, you know, what's going on with Disney and the DeSantis government? Because, you know, this is now, uh, you know, something that's costing Disney. I mean, there's estimates out here in the tens of billions of dollars of, uh, of, of a bottom line economic hit to this corporation around, you know, what you think should be an entirely cultural political, you know, debate and that now has ensnared one of America's biggest companies and hey, the land of Mickey Mouse and all those great little people that we love. Yeah, it's this all goes back to a bill in Florida um, called by its critics that don't say gay bill, um, which is about you know, schools and curriculum and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, I think it's been a little bit misportrayed by its opponents, but also it is a pretty bad bill. I think that's fair to say is that it's probably um, bad on both sides of the ledger. Um, and then I think 
you know, through pressure, activist pressure, Disney felt compelled to weigh in on this. Um, Florida, with its governor, Ron DeSantis, has responded by taking away some of the special uh, protections that Disney has in Florida, which are incredibly special. Like Disney has an incredible deal there. The history of Disney goes back to starting in California, not being satisfied by the, you know, the dispensations given by the government there and then starting in Florida with Disney World. Um, So they have a pretty sweet deal. If I were them, I would have said, hey, our deal is pretty sweet. Maybe we should keep our mouth shut (laughs) for a little while. Um, So that, I mean, that's the microcosm here of sort of a bigger issue. And, you know, I I always go back to something I remember Jeff Bezos saying, might've been in a book about him or something, an interview he said, where, you know, if you have a great quarterly report, you should be happy. You should celebrate for a little while, but you should also be aware that that is the result of decisions you made five years ago. And Mm. if you are, you know, a CEO, that's how you should think. Whenever you're making a decision, it's for five years from now. And the one thing I will say about this, any company getting involved in this kind of political stuff, they are making decisions based on a 24-hour time frame. People are mad at them on Twitter. Often this is driven by employees and their Slack channels. Uh, Maybe they're right. Maybe they're on the right side of the issue, but it's almost beside the point. Um, You know, historically, this is not where we fought our political battles. And, you know, for a lot of us, that was probably a good thing because we do have venues for this kind of thing um, to fight these battles. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this goes because I think it is almost across the board hurt companies that have been getting involved in these things. Roger, let me put it to you. You, you know, you interact a lot with senior executives in, in your various roles. Um, you know, in Canada, it seems to me thus far, we've this issue of the politicization of business has been somewhat minimized. Um, we've had you know, remember the high profile case in 2015, when Tim Hortons removed Enbridge advertisements in their locations, and that caused a bit of a fuss. You know, a couple of weeks ago, listeners will remember some controversy around Pierre Polyev's uh, event at Steam Whistle in Toronto, and the, the company released a statement to, you know, separating themselves um, from the Polyev campaign and its ideas. You know, what's just your sense of, of how this is manifesting itself in Canada? Do, do you see it? And, and what are you hearing from some of the business leaders that you talk to about the pressures that they're under to, in effect, go woke? Yeah, well, I think the single biggest new variable is just how hot and tight the labor market is. So I think what people have to appreciate is that, you know, the power in those conversations, not just on salary, but on issues like values right now, lies with uh, your employees, um, you know, present and future, because you're, you're always trying to obviously attract and maximize talent. So I think what's, what's been interesting to think about it, it's just a, it's a tangent, but it's an interesting uh, knock-on effect of this kind of inflationary surge that we're in is just how the balance of power, you know, has shifted and that previously it was largely with the consumer, um, you know, up until the last couple of years. And I think, you know, consumers understandably voted with their feet when it came to, um, Hey, the pillow guy, <laughs> we all remember, we all remember him and others, um, you know, around Trump, but now it's, now it's really the employee. And it's employee retention, employee recruitment. And I think it leads to temptations. It leads to temptations on the part of corporations to to try to differentiate from the competition. And one of the most effective ways to do that is to signal, to signal values, to signal um, 
how you look at issues that you think a primarily millennial workforce, because that's the workforce you're going after, is going to resonate with. So I think that's a lot of why you know we're seeing this. And then what happens in our highly polarized tribalistic culture is that sparks, right? So the Ron DeSantis's, the Disney's, the others, they get kind of sucked into this vortex. But I, I think for the business community, it is not going away soon. As long as we've got tight labor markets and hot inflation, we're going to have this confluence of business and politics in our in our front view uh, windscreen. That, that, that David Frum raises the uh, a, a similar point in, in the forthcoming episode that um, that this has become in effect a kind of non financial uh, offering to employees, uh, younger employees who are motivated by values. The other thing David uh, raised. Uh, which I thought was interesting is that the most coveted consumer cohort are are, are younger high high income um, consumers. They uh, are less uh, fixed when it comes to their um, consumer preferences, and they have high disposable income. And so, for those factors, as you say, Roger, uh, we seem to be uh, heading down a path that is not going to um, take a detour anytime soon. The question, I guess, for conservatives is how do they respond to these trends? You know, the DeSantis approach is obviously uh, obviously one. Uh, there's been a lot of pushback from some conservative intellectuals that uh, conservatives, as a matter of principle, shouldn't be using the state and state power to kind of penalize individual companies because they disagree with you. That, in effect, seems like something you would expect from uh, illiberal regimes or liberal governments around the world. So there's a kind of fascinating conversation going on in the world of conservatism about what the right kind of political and policy response ought to be to some of these trends. Let me just make one point on this and then I'll, I'll, stop, I'll shut up. Um, you know, one area where I do think it, we will find policy expression is on the, the area of subject of competition or antitrust policy. You know, I think of the case of Amazon in the past couple of years uh, that refused to sell a book by um, the Ethics and Public Policy Center President Ryan Anderson on transgenderism. One can agree or disagree with the content of the book. That's beside the point. But by refusing to sell the book, it didn't just lock him out of the most coveted um, book sale market. It actually sent a powerful signal to publishers not to publish this, these, this type of content or these types of themes. That reflects, you know, when you, a company's political values um, can can be imposed on the society in a kind of a monopolistic way. I think there 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 is a reasonable argument um, that that's a case for competition law or antitrust response, and that is a probably more principled way to think about this than the kind of one-off confrontational reaction that we're seeing in the state of Florida. Maybe Stuart, just to give you the last word on this because there's an interesting, you know, tangent we can bring back in. We discussed it last week, which is Elon Musk now much closer to the acquisition of Twitter. Um, some people saying again, this is another example, as Sean said, of you know the perils of kind of media concentration amongst a billionaire kind of class. We've seen a lot of mass. Uh, well, I would say mass, but we've seen high profile. Uh, center left Twitter people deleting their accounts. Who knows? They maybe maybe they're not deleted. Maybe they're paused. I don't know. I don't know how I'll it works. Back. If, you, if you can come back, I think I think you have like fourteen days or twenty eight days or something to reclaim your precious followers. Um, 
what is your take just on the on the the latest week of saga amongst i want to hear from you like amongst your journalist friends like is this is this angst around around uh elon real and does it get back to what we were talking about you know disney desantis employees and corporations you know flagging values as a way of of asserting brand and claiming market share yeah, I was actually trying to, uh, yesterday I was kind of thinking about it, like why is Elon Musk is seen as some kind of arch conservative or some kind of arch MAGA guy now? And it's hard to really put a, you know, some kind of sense of why that's the case now. And I think just because he is seen that way as sort of a right figure, a right wing figure, um, this is a lot of tribal signaling. It shows you it shows whose side you're on when you say you don't like Elon Musk or you're mad that he's taking over Twitter. And I think that's predominantly what's happening here is people are just doing what they do on Twitter, which is showing which group they're part of. Um, and, you know, the Twitter thing is interesting because, you know, the steam whistle situation with Polyev, it must have been about a couple of hundred people at the absolute most, maybe a few dozen who are complaining about that. And that is the problem with these kinds of things is that the conversation on Twitter is more radical than the general conversation. So this is the peril for corporations is that they think that is an expression of popular will when it's just a few activists. Um, and secondly, these kinds of activists, they don't seem to care as much as say, you know, what's going on in China. Um, they're not going to go after a company and say, hey, until you stop doing business there, um, we're not going to yeah, your, your business. Your iPhone made by Foxconn in China, you know, with employees during this latest surge of the pandemic locked into the iPhone factory to complete your iPhone for you. Yeah. Like, let's just think about that. Yeah, it's an issue that you'll never hear from that segment of Twitter. And like, for whatever reason, right? People tend to care about things closer to home. There's, you know, they don't like to go after China for a, a bunch of different reasons, but, you know, it's a very distorted picture of the world you're getting there. And that, I think, if I were running a corporation, that'll never happen. But if I were, um, <laughs> I would say, look, this is not the real world. We shouldn't be folding to a few activists. And the problem though is that if you're Netflix and you have a Slack channel and it's full of people who are in that conversation on Twitter, it kind of becomes the real world for you because you're going to lose staff and it could cost you a lot of money. It could cost you some really talented people. So um, it's a really tough problem for some of these companies. Sean, let's give you the last word in uh, today's conversation. Uh, Elon does this, we assume, I mean, there's still a few things that can happen between cup and lip, but it looks like Twitter is now in uh, the Elon universe. Is this a win for the conservative movement? I think it is um, in, to the extent to which he's um, going to, you know, de-wokeify uh, Twitter or at least um, do his best. The problem is Elon Musk can't buy every company in the world. <laughs> um, and so there's going to have to be some kind of uh, of settlement here that will involve, you know, degree of leadership on the part of CEOs to push back against some of these trends and, and, and see the real world as it is, as Stuart says. And then I think, as I say, for a sensible, credible, dispassionate policy response, the extent it's needed on the part of conservatives, as opposed to, um, uh, as opposed to these sort of one-offs that we've seen in Florida, there's a, uh, it will become unsustainable, as both of you have said, if um, a politics then become totalizing, if it doesn't just, it spills out of the political arena and now spills into our work life, our family life, that's unhealthy 
um, for a society. And so um, Elon's uh, opening salvo is a good one, but he won't be able to solve the problem on his own. Well, look, listener, if you've gotten this far, we got a little treat for you, uh, a petit cadeau to wrap up the episode, which is if you upgrade from free, and let's face it, you're enjoying your daily Hub newsletter. It comes every morning courtesy of Sean Stewart's hard work at 7 a.m. Eastern into your inbox gratis. If you want to support all of that and the time and effort that it takes to create that newsletter and update and publish uh, throughout the day on our website, thehub.ca, consider becoming a Hub donor. You can do that with a donation of 99 bucks for the year. So basically like a, I don't know, we don't count things in packs of cigarettes anymore. I'm betraying my age, but we do it in coffee. So it's like a couple, it's like your monthly coffee or two a year to pay for the Hub. We will send you right now two tickets on us to the May 12th Monk debate on the Ukraine value $180. So you do the arbitrage on that. This is probably the best deal we've ever had for hub membership. You get to support us and we get to say thank you by sending you to the May 12 monk debate on the Ukraine war, not to be missed. The first monk debate I'll be moderating in two and a half years, returning to the main stage at Roy Thompson hall downtown Toronto on May 12th. So you can do that all right now on our website. Just go on to the homepage, click on donate. Anyone that upgrades their membership between now and May 5th uh, to the $99 a year category, we will be in touch with you immediately by email and get you those two complimentary tickets to the month debates. So thanks guys, Sean Stewart, have a great weekend. We'll do this all again next Friday. Talk soon guys. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of The Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, Check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the Donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt, and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a Hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.